This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. Inflation impacts many sectors of the economy, both here and around the world. How are rising food prices impacting U.S. meat exports? What are the challenges and opportunities globally? We visit with the farmer who is the current chair of the U.S. Meat Export Federation for a look at what he sees ahead for U.S. livestock producers. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. When it comes to using nitrogen on my corn, the more predictable, the better. That's why I've used Pivot Bio Proven 40 on my corn for the past two seasons. With Pivot Bio, I know my crops are getting the nitrogen they need, no matter the weather. And now that same predictability is available right on the corn seed. Pivot Bio Proven 40 on seed gives growers even more flexibility with their nitrogen plant. To learn more, contact your local sales rep or just go to pivotbio.com. Dean Meyer understands local and global agriculture. As a crop and livestock producer in northern Iowa, he oversees an operation in an area where land prices can hit twenty-five or even $30,000 per acre. But his service with several commodity organizations, including his current role as chair of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, provides him important insights he can share with other producers. We talked about the prospects ahead and the challenges and opportunities globally. Dean Meyer is the chairman of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. He is from Rock Rapids, Iowa. Dean, we have uh, been waiting to have this conversation because some of the weather you've had in northern Iowa. What is it like now? You've had some big snowstorms up there. Yeah, we went from extreme cold right into getting, uh, you know, 20 to 23 inches of snow in one event. And, uh, you know, as a livestock producer, uh, that always creates challenges. But, uh, you know, we we just hope it doesn't last too long and too severe and uh, the livestock can handle it as long as we, you know, take care of the crack management procedures. Um, it's, it's right now it's, it's stabilized. It's mild. Um, we see a lot of snow piled around, but it's manageable. Well, you know, 22, 23 inches of snow, I'm guessing you perhaps have seen a snow storm that big before, but it is somewhat rare. How did you make it through it? I guess there's no other choice. You just have to make it through it. But did you find that you were doing some things you hadn't done in several years? Yeah, that, it's, it's been a number of years since we had snow like this. I can't remember exactly. I call it the good old-fashioned snowstorms when we were kids. You know, it seems like back in the 70s, you know, we had storms like that. You know, we had warning. We uh, got all our snow equipment prepared. We knew it was coming. So that, that always helps when you have some time to prepare. And uh, as far as taking care of the livestock, you know, you can you can do some things. You can actually only do so much. But we we do have, you know, half of our cattle are inside. Our, our feedlot is inside monoslope barns. So, you know, they really pay off in weather like this. And, of course, you know, the hogs in our, in our finishing operation are all inside barns. So, you know, they, they're comfortable during storms. It's just a matter of getting to and fro, you know, um, traveling and getting down the road. When everything's white, you don't see – nobody has fence posts anymore to, to gauge where you're at on the road. It's always interesting. Uh, navigating those. Right. 
Well, you mentioned a couple of things that you do there on the farm. Talk about the mix of livestock and crops you have. I know that beside your role on USMEF right now, you have been active in other commodity organizations in the state of Iowa. So it sounds like that you have both crops and livestock there on your farm. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. We're uh, a corn, soybean, uh, cattle feedlot, and hog finishing operation in Rock Rapids. And I farm with my three sons. We, you know, all all have different responsibilities. Uh, Eleven years ago, I was asked to serve an Iowa Corn Growers Association, and um, you know, we're as far away from Des Moines in Iowa as we can be. But I think it's important that we have representation there, and a lot of that's because of livestock. I mean, North, if if you're familiar with Northwest Iowa, it's the densest livestock area in the state and one of the densest in the country, and so we need to be represented on on all those boards because. Uh, livestock is an important part of corn. It's the number one consumer of corn. And, and that's what really got me involved there. And I, I chaired uh, different committees. I was on the Animal Ag and Environment Committee uh, most of my term at Iowa Corn. And uh, from there, uh, I was elected by the corn states to serve on the U.S. Meat Export Federation Board. And uh, and that's where I got the position I am today. I, I served on that um, six years and then was put into the leadership role officer team and uh, great organization. They're both great organizations. I think it's really important that we represent the products we produce. Uh, you know, if we don't, somebody else will, and that's not always accurate. And so I think it's important that we're at the table. In your area, I'm interested, Are have there been any recent land sales? What would land uh, there be going for? Because we hear about uh, a lot of record prices in northwestern Iowa. Yeah, um, it's interesting you ask. I, I'm sure you've heard of uh, one of the recent land sales in the last couple months. That $30,000 an acre land was probably 25, 30 miles from me, the, the, the one that made the news. And um, I would say any of the Better farm ground, average and above average farm ground is bringing 20,000. It has been anyway since uh, the end of last year. The last quarter of 2022 was continued to be strong. I mean, it's it seems like anything that was of decent farm ground, average CSR or above, was pushing the 20,000 plus per acre. And I know we're going to visit about Meat Export Federation, but with those land prices, I am curious, do you see that holding steady? I mean, I guess a lot of this depends on where the commodity prices go and what interest rates do, but is there a lot of cash that has is in those operations that can be spent? Uh, they're setting on enough cash to keep that market where it's at, or what do you think you see as far as land prices going forward from here? You know, that's the million-dollar question here. You know, that's the question we're all asking you know, there, there's there's still a demand for land, good quality ground, um, but these commodity prices seems like they flattened out a little bit. They're still good, but it flattened out. Input, I think input prices are probably going to change the story too. We've seen them change dramatically from a year ago. And then, of course, the interest rates. Uh, we, we know that eventually has to affect land prices. Uh, but uh, I would say... They're still going to be strong in my in my eyes and what I see in my world. They're going to continue to be strong. Um, I could see them settling back a little bit, but yeah, I I'm not an economist on that. I uh, I just kind of say what I see in my world here. 
Right, right. Well, let's talk about the meat exports here because you're, of course, with, with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. And I'm sure that not only are you discussing these topics a lot, but I'm guessing you've also been traveling some. Let's go to Asia first because that's the place that we often think about, especially with beef exports. And I'll let you take it where you would like to. We think about Japan, Korea, China, and there can be a multitude of things going on in those countries. So give us an update of, of what you're seeing right now and the the current status, but also the opportunities we see exporting into those countries. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. Meat Export Federation, first of all, is is broad-based. I mean, we don't key on any one country, but uh, we we start in countries, uh, I guess – what I way I always look at it, the recipe for for U.S. Meat Export Federation entering countries is is the demographics first. I mean, we need we need large population, we need we need a growing middle class, and you you need a population of people that desires protein. And um, you know, forty five years ago we we started in Japan, and you know that was a market that you know we had zero exports to. And um, you look where that country is today. It's it's a fully mature market, um, but it's still a great market. I mean, it isn't like it's diminished. It continues to grow, even though demographics there, there's getting to be an aged population, and uh, yet we can still maintain and grow our exports there. And it's been it's been great. Our and and I guess I guess the other thing, the part of that recipe is trade agreements. I mean, we've got to have access. I mean. Is we we need we need access, and so trade agreements are important to U.S. Meat Export Federation, and we work with our commodity groups, um, the legislative side of our commodity groups, to help uh, promote those, and uh, and making sure that we negotiate free and fair trade agreements. You know, if if we have all those things together, the trade agreements, the the popular growing middle class, you know, it, it's really not hard to sell our product in those countries. You look at Korea, since we've had the Chorus trade agreement, you look how, you know, how fast that country has grown. It, it, it goes back and forth on the number one beef importer from the United States. And uh, it was just back in the early 2000s where after the mad cow, they, they had held candlelight vigilance against U.S. meat. And today, you know, the cost, they got the number one U.S. meat Costco in the world in that country. And so... That's that's doesn't happen by itself. It doesn't happen overnight. It's the work of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, the staff in country. Then you got you got China. I mean, that's different different dynamics there. We've got a country that, uh, you know, we've slowly introduced U.S. meat into there. It's it you know it it's come in through different channels at times, but uh, they've realized how safe and abundant and important and delicious U.S. meat is, and they desire it. With with the trade agreement, um, phase one China trade agreement, you know that enabled us to uh, to export more meat there, and they they were right up there with Japan and China or Japan and uh, Korea. Uh, they're going to continue to be a, a great market. They've what, what's really been impressive with meat exports is even during the COVID pandemic with the zero lockdowns. It, starting in Japan and Korea, and it continued on in China, you know, the zero COVID policy up until now, they're starting to relax in it. U.S. meat has been able to maintain exports in those countries. The last two years were the largest meat export years we've had, despite having some zero COVID policy. 
it just shows how um, U.S. MEF staff in those countries can shift gears. You know, online sales, uh, they, they've really been able to work the markets. And, you know, people still need to eat no matter what's going on. And, and you got to find a way to get it to them. And I think it's just been amazing how U.S. meat export staff has been able to shift gears, been able to continue to get those products into the hands of the consumer. And the consumers, that's what they desired. Uh, we're seeing some opportunity. We'll probably see some opportunity here in the future in China as we, uh, as the COVID policy is is relaxed. Um, it's not going to be good for a while. I mean, they've got infections going strong right now through the country, but we can see in maybe six months when, from now when food service has been ultimately closed in those countries. And once that food service starts opening, what we've seen in other countries is people are can't wait to go out and eat. And I think we're going to see a nice bump. It might be six months down the road, like I said, but uh, there's going to be opportunity there in China. And uh, they want our product. They love our product. You know, it really doesn't, you know, their other option is Australia. And that's usually our fiercest competition in those countries. But we've got something to offer that corn-fed U.S. beef and pork is really, really unbeatable. As you look to other points in the world, certainly we could go through lots of different places but Africa continues to be a place that is a blossoming market. Talk about what's going on there, what you see both now, but the opportunity for the future. Yeah, a- Africa is going to be the new frontier. Um, you know, a lot of times it starts with uh, infrastructure building. When you when you get oil companies and, and companies that come into those countries and start building infrastructure there, um, meat export comes behind a lot of that. And tourism, you know, when... Africa has been a lot more popular for tourism. You know, that that's still, that's the beginning of growth in U.S. meat exports. It gives us the opportunity to get in those countries, introduce our products. And um, no matter what country we're in, I think it's important to know that the U.S. Meat Export Federation uh, really excels in putting the cut of meat in the country where it has, gains the most value. And a lot of times these cuts are cuts that, we don't consume here or aren't desirable here, the variety cuts, the, you know, the tongue, the tripe, the, uh, you know, the intestines, pig's feet, uh, th- those things that, you know, to put it related in dollars that producers can understand, just by selling those variety meats and undesirable cuts in export markets adds $62 per head to every beef carcass we market here. And in pork, it adds another $10 a head to every pork carcass. So, it's significant, and uh, that's really the cream of the crop. You know, when when you when you get those extra dollars for those cuts that we really don't consume here. I know I was in uh, I was in Japan in September, and uh, was in a retail grocery store, and there was a beef tongue there on the shelf. And in the United States, it's worth about three dollars a pound. On the shelf there, it was it was at twenty five U.S. dollars per pound. So, you know, that's the value we can add. Do you think as we look at the world and the world economy, certainly food has gone up in this country and other countries. Does that seem to be impacting demand though? Or are people still putting a priority on, I want to go get that American beef or pork and maybe it doesn't cost as much over there compared to what's happening here. I'm interested what you're seeing. No, and that's and that's a very valid valid point. But what we've seen, I mean, we've had a number of headwinds this past year. You know, not not just with COVID, 
We've, we've got slumping currencies in a lot of these countries. The value of the dollar to these currencies is, you know, back in October, it was a record. I think in Japan, it was a dollar 40, you know, and, and uh, it, it's come back close to a dollar 30 right now. But, but uh, we've seen currencies like that. And then we've seen inflation, you know, and um, demand has really been pretty resilient. I, I think this dollar value is making some impact. We, we saw uh, December, November, December sales drop somewhat, but pork had actually picked up. So uh, it, it, it's amazing. I, I think to what you had just said, I, I think we've got real opportunity. We've got to stay on the throttle. It's going to take, it's going to take effort. Um, I know the last couple of years we've done a, some new promotions where, you know, a lot of times we'll bring groups of uh, traders into our country and since because of COVID, it kind of changed gears. We're, we're back to maybe bringing traders in. But what we did is we, we've we brought uh, film crews out to our farms. We filmed what we do, how we raise our product, and we take our farm to them. And that has been extremely successful, uh, especially in those mature markets. Um, but we're, we're also using them in countries, new markets, too. I, if they can see that we're not that big corporate America, you know, we're, we're family farms, you know, 97% of our farms are family operations and we're uh, how we sustainably raise our product and um, how we care for it. And then the products we feed them, the high quality feed, corn, soy products, we feed our livestock. It really impresses international consumers. And uh, I think we need to continue to do that more. I know we had, uh, I, I was involved in one of the beef videos. Uh, it was called Journey to American Beef, and they promoted our beef, U.S. beef in Japan. And in the first three weeks, it had like 8 million hits on its social media site. You know, it, I mean, those people care about what they eat. When when you're only 32 or 33% self-sustained, or, you know, self-sustainable in those countries, and you have to import 60 to 70% of your food, you it really matters to you what country you buy from and the quality of the food you buy. Has your time on the USMEF board changed the way that you do things any on your farm or the way that you look at things? I would think it would have to just because you're seeing so many different countries and you're meeting with people from different markets. How does it change what you do every day uh, there in Iowa? Well, first of all, just in networking with there's nine different sectors involved in U.S. meat export and, and networking with the packers, purveyors. I mean, I've learned so much setting that side of the table. And when you can sit down at the table with those that actually are doing the trading in the country and, and the staff in the country, it's helped me get a 40,000-foot view of how this organization, not just this organization, but how, how, how trade even works and how, how ag is actually a world market, and it truly is. And then um, – you know, I could say, yeah, we 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 fine tuned. We brought things back to our operation. When you can see that big picture and the in the avenue that we are going as far as sustainable quality meat trade, it it helps us move forward to the next step in our operations too. Whether it's networking with, uh, you know, I'm saying on our on our pork side, for example, you know, we're involved in a larger organization that we all raise the same breed so to speak, of, of pork. We market it all the same packing plan, and, and, and we're able to track the sustainability of how much water, how much how much electricity. So at the end of the day, we can identify these this livestock as uh, 
is a sustainable product coming from this farm and, and then the quality of it's consistent. So, uh, you know, we're, we're involved in, in different avenues that way. And in the, in the beef side, we're working the same way. We continually strive to improve our beef quality grade. We know that this country used to be 3% prime and we're, you know, 10 or 11% prime. It's just the quality of our products continue to go up and, and we've got to, we've got to stay on that, on that path. You mentioned the the story, so to speak, behind the product. We hear about that a lot in this country, but is that even more important in some of these other countries, the story behind the product, or, or what are you seeing? Because we hear a lot about that now as producers, I think. I think I think it was the international markets that started that. Japan, for one, is 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 a country that always has had a story behind it. You know, we've heard of the Wagyu beef there, and they got the Colby Wagyu. I mean, when you go over and you buy... You go in the supermarkets in Japan and you see you see their beef on the shelf, their domestic Wagyu beef. It doesn't just say Wagyu. It identifies what Wagyu, what province it came from, and who raised it. And then what's interesting is they put videos beside that. And you, they, they'll set – I mean, a Japanese consumer will spend a half a day in the grocery store because it's important to them. What they eat is really important to them. And they'll watch this video and they'll buy this product that came from this farm. And um, and that's what inspired you know U.S. Meat Export to go down that avenue and put these same videos together, and um, it's it's really gratifying when you can go into a store in an, in an international market and see U.S. meat and and featuring U.S. meat. Each country is unique on how you market it, but in general, once it gets into the consumer's hands and it's and it becomes uh, broad based, we market our product as U.S corn, grain-fed meat, and, uh, you know, whether Central, South America, um, the success of the Columbia pork market, we can go to South America now, and uh, it's U.S. product that sells there. You know, it, uh, we've, we've, a lot of times in these countries, uh, we'll go in and we'll work. I'm, I'm talking at the early stages when you just get into a free trade agreement, you're able to get into a country, you work with the local producers there. And help them to uh, develop their own marketing plan. You know, a lot of a lot of them are undeveloped. You know, when you can help them raise their tide, you know, a, a rising tide raises all ships, and uh, that's that's what's really important about these markets. You know, we're not trying to take away from local uh, products. We're just trying to add to it and enhance them. You know, a lot of time, most countries we have a lot more to offer, and uh, besides. There, there's a population there that demands protein, and uh, we, we need to supply them with that. Dean, as we wind up, any other things that you would want producers to know out there just from your travels or what USMEF is uh, doing in the world? I think really that one of the really important things about U.S. Meat Export Federation, as I mentioned before, we have nine sectors that work together, and all the commodity organizations, farm organization, the packers and traders – What's really important is how we continue to work together tightly. You know, we can send a group over to China or to uh, Malaysia or whatever country we want to go into, and we can have a we can have a corn farmer, we can have a soybean farmer, we can have a beef, a pork, and a lamb producer all on the same team, and we're promoting all the same products together. I mean, it's it's a it's a joint effort here, and uh, to me, that's the key: how we we can set at the table. We can we can we can strategize together, and then we can work together promoting our products and and 
you know, it's a checkoff money that ultimately inspires this. And that's what I think is really important for producers to know is, is it's their checkoff dollars at work. It's leveraged with government funds. Government uh, funding is, you know, 40, around 40% of U.S. Meat Export Federation's budget. And uh, the more checkoff dollars, the more dollars of government MAP and FMD funding were were awarded. And then them dollars are also leveraged with uh, with uh, industry dollars. Example, we can go into Mexico and do a promotion, and the checkoff dollars with the, with the government funds, and then uh, say a Costco in Mexico says, well, well, we'll, we'll match that. And I've seen $1 of checkoff return $26 in international markets. And it, there, there's, there's no other place where the checkoff dollar is used more wisely than in export markets and the growth that we've seen from that. Dean, I appreciate the time. Good conversation and good to catch up on what's going on. Thank you, Andrew. I've, I've appreciated it. As you can tell, I, I have a passion for this and, uh, and I appreciate your support here too. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Remember, you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Just type in Farming the Countryside. We're regularly posting to those social media platforms to share more information, pictures, and videos during the week. And remember, you can hear these shows in a variety of ways as well at farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or your favorite podcast platform. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.